everyone. This is the Context Matters podcast, and I am your host, Cindy Parker. I am an educator, explorer, writer, and speaker. I enjoy gathering around the table with interesting people who have different life experiences from me. And then we talk about God, Bible, theology, and sometimes other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcome around this table. Please reach out to me through my Narrative of Place website. I am joined once again with the humorous and sometimes sarcastic, but always brilliant, Dr. Lawson Stone. He is a professor of Old Testament at Asbury Seminary and has an expertise in early Israelite history and religion. He has a series of videos about violence in the Old Testament that you can find on Seedbed's 7-Minute Seminary. I'll link those videos down in the episode notes. We left off last week talking about why the terminology of the quote-unquote conquest narrative is actually a misnomer. Lawson brings his point to life, and he uses dramatized voices and a healthy dose of comedy to reframe how we think about violence. Let's start with the proper way of understanding the fighting that the Israelites participated in. So conquest is a misnomer. You know, we think of the, you know, landing at Normandy and storming out on the beach or something. Mm -hmm. And what did the Israelites do? They crossed the Jordan and then proceeded to circumcise everybody. Well, that's awkward. Can you imagine you're, you're a spy in Jericho and you're looking down at these people? Okay, they've crossed the Jordan. What are they doing now? Wait, <laughs> they're doing what? Yeah, they're, they're all whacking each other with flint knives. I mean, that would be like... Yeah, like now they're out for a few days. <laughs> yeah, really? And in the text, it says in the Septuagint, it says that after they were circumcised, the Hebrew just says they remain in a camp. The Septuagint says they sat very still in the camp. Like, <laughs> I don't want to move. I mean, what kind of what kind of warriors is this? And then they have vacation Bible school. You know, they have a Passover. You know, why is this night different from every other night? Because this is the night the Canaanites come down and kill us all. And, and then Joshua, you know, goes and kind of is looking at Jericho and this angel, you know, meets him and informs him that he's no longer in charge. And the angel says, I am the commander of the armies of the Lord. And then Joshua was thinking, wasn't that my job? Um, am I fired already? So the, the militarism is really understated. So when we look at it, then what's being destroyed there is a political system. Hmm. And the other thing is that in the ancient world, it was very hard to attack a city by surprise because mm -hmm. you couldn't move very fast. You couldn't fly over in a jet. You didn't have radios. And so your army is moving along, clunk, clunk, clunk. And, you know, if you read the story of the Battle of Kadesh, the Egyptian army was the most nimble army in the world. And the Hittites saw them coming from scores of miles away and set up all kinds of diversions and, and did manage a surprise attack once they got on the other side of the city, you know, and come around. So people knew when a city was about to be attacked and they had the alternative of fleeing if they wanted to. And in fact, I'm going to argue in the commentary that this is what Rahab is actually telling the Israelite spies. When she says, all the people have melted away because of you, that verb melt 
When humans are the subject, it means run away. It doesn't mean feel sad or be discouraged. It means run away. And I've got some Egyptian parallels that I'll include to back that up. But and, and we know all of the kings of Canaan from the Amarna letters were paranoid about being turned on by the local populace. In the Amarna letters, we have reports of kings being murdered in their own towns by, you know, local brigands or something. One guy writes a letter to Pharaoh and says, have you heard about so-and-so? He was killed by his own people. And then he, he lists all these folks. So these kings lived in a terror of of local insurrection. And so then Rahab says, also, we heard what you did to Sihon and Og. Well, if you read those stories in numbers, it's clear that the Israelites had a role in what was also a local insurrection. And the Amorite king was not the actual Moabite king. The Amorites were told very clearly had conquered Moab and the Amorite king was heterogeneous to the Moabite people. And so when the Israelites arrive, they get rid of the Amorite king. And so now Rahab says, we heard what you did to the Amorite king. And now our local heterogeneous Mm -hmm. ruler is feeling a little worried because all the people of the land have fled. So this guy's left high and dry. So, you know, you may not be talking about vast numbers of non-combatants who simply want to live on their farms and practice their decadent fertility religion and be left alone. This is probably not the case at all. You've got Mm. urban centers that are run by Egyptian-sponsored elites. You've got mercenaries. You've got other people crowding into Canaan from other places. And the Israelites have, you know, their people lived in Canaan for centuries before going to Israel or Egypt. So I think, you know, on balance, I see it more as people reclaiming their, their original land than, than like the European settlers seizing North America or Australia or something. And also, you know, in the European settler thing, the European settlers were vastly technologically superior to bows and arrows. I mean, they weren't so good on the dysentery part, but they were great on the bows and arrows versus flintlocks. But the Israelites had no advantage, had no advantage whatsoever, unless you believe the stuff about there being two and a half million of them, in which case they didn't even need God. You know, they could have just walked in because, like I say, the population estimates for Canaan at the end of the late Bronze Age are less than 100,000 people. Hmm. If that, I mean, it may be as low as 50. And at this point, I asked Dr. Stone to pause for just a moment and then define some terms, and one in particular that is exceptionally challenging to translate, not only in terms of finding an English word equivalent, but also in translating the concept behind it. The Hebrew word is harem. It means, or is translated sometimes as devoted, devoted to destruction, or dedicated or set apart. So you can see how this is rather confusing. Last week, Dr. Stone mentioned that this word is found throughout the first half of Joshua. So how does this word contribute to how we understand violence or the conquest? The interesting thing is there's not a lot of non-Hebrew cognates for this word. You know, you really have to hunt. And Arabic doesn't count because there's so much traffic between Hebrew and Arabic. But in Akkadian, some of these others, it's hard to find. It seems to imply, I like the word taboo. When something is made harem, it is now taboo. 
it cannot be used for anything except the purposes of whoever it is harem to. And so it is the origin of our word harem, that building where all the, the, the Arab sheikhs' wives, you know, live. And if you go into the harem unor- unauthorized, you know, they whack your head off or something. And so it has to do with being set aside in a very strong way. There's some contamination between harem and kadash, holy, in some people's minds, because kodesh, holy, has no notion of separation, semantically inherent. But people connect it with haram, which is about separation, and, mm-hmm. and, and it gets all confused. That's a whole other subject. But so something that is harem is the exclusive property of whoever it's devoted to, and it is rigorously to be um, left alone by others. And so, and so you have in Leviticus, at the, at the end of Leviticus in the vows, a number of things that are harem and how they may be redeemed, how they may be released from their harem status. And then there's some other things that can never be released from that status. So it's not an absolute, you know, always. So we, we have always taken harem then to, to imply then that a city was, if it was harem, that it was totally destroyed. And so sometimes harem means devote to destruction. And there's no doubt that, that destruction is one of the mechanisms, because what use does God have for a late Bronze Age rundown urban center? I mean, the, the cities of Canaan, the end of the late Bronze Age, were miserable. They were nothing like the Middle Bronze Age. You know, you look at Middle Bronze Age Jericho, wow, I want to live there. Look at late Bronze Age Jericho, and you think it's a ghost. You know, it's like it's like a couple of buildings and some houses and a refurbished wall and and some you know Jabba the Hut type guy you know who calls himself a king and who can intimidate locals. Uh, but if Ramses the Second had showed up, the king of Jericho would have just been a roach under his chariot wheel. But to the Israelites, he seems like a really tough guy. So, but anyway, harem then has to do with. When you're God, you don't have any use for these cities. So the idea is that no one else uses it, so you destroy it. But it doesn't, the destruction is a method of executing or carrying out the harem. It isn't inherent in the word itself. And so you could have a place that is harem. That just means nobody can go there. And if you take Hatsor, for example, if you take the late Bronze Age destroyed city and then stack on top of it, the different subsequent construction that took place, what you'll find is right around that main building at Hatsor, they never built on that site. They avoided, they kind of came in close, but they never, it's a donut. And there's a, a book somewhere that has the different colors. And you can see the site of that original late Bronze Age temple or palace, whatever it was, remained taboo. People were scared of it. One of the excavators calls it a ruin cult, that certain ruins have such a sacred or mysterious quality that people are afraid to approach them. Afraid, And so they'll pull a rock out of there to use as a standing stone. They'll build a, they'll build a, a cult site at the edge, but they won't violate the sanctity of that ruin. And I think that's related to harem. So harem doesn't have to necessarily be associated always with with sort of unlimited destruction. But needless to say, when a harem is implemented, it does mean whoever's doing it is wholly in control of the situation. 
and in battle that, you know, means, you know, significant defeat of an enemy. So, and you know, there's, there's violence in Joshua. I'm not going to say, you know, they all just went in and, and shared, you know, Jesus with them and they all converted, but a lot of people do seem to have affiliated with Israel. I mean, look at the archeological evidence. It's very hard to know the difference between just from material culture, a Canaanite and an Israelite. And so the settlers in these early Israelite villages seem very familiar with life in Canaan. That suggests to me that a lot of people who were legit Israelites came from Canaan. And so I I think the obvious answer there is some Israelites arrived from outside. There were a lot of people already in Canaan who, who, like Rahab and some others, who affiliated with them. And basically the bad guys were the city-state rulers. I don't know if there's a number of deaths that if we can get below it, nobody's appalled. I mean, you know, I want to ask people how much killing is okay that you won't consider God a moral monster. Well, people will usually say, well, none. And so what the real assumption then is pacifism. If you're a pacifist, you're not going to like the Old Testament and I can't help you. Pacifism is a legitimate interpretation of some parts of the Bible, but as the Bible as a whole, uh, violence and warfare are accepted as a, as a tragic but real and unavoidable part of life. And if God's going to mix it up with humans, and if God is going to work through a human community, that community is going to face opposition. And so, you know, when that community is understood as a political entity, then we, we will find them engaging in warfare. Now, the early church, of course, was not a political entity. And so one of the hallmarks of the least until the Middle Ages, the abandonment of violent coercion as a way to extend their influence. And so, and it, one of the tragedies of the Middle Ages is the church sort of fell back in love with, with coercion and began to understand itself as a polity. But the, uh, the church is not a polity and has no rights of coercion, uh, especially over those who are not a members of the church. So there's a, a different a different dynamic at work there. But yeah, what I would just argue is that the conquest and the battles and judges are no more problematic than warfare and violence in general. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's least fair to say is if you compare the Joshua and judges with Okay, this. I've got right here is a life-size replica of the Taylor prison. See that? Uh, look at that. Yes, yeah, Sennacherib's annals, okay? Now, if you take all the violence in Joshua and Judges, I'm just talking about the text that actually report violence, they might not even fill one column of this thing. But if you've read this thing like I have, it is loaded with violence, very lovingly described. The king talks about the blood and gore and guts coming up as high as the horse's bridle. I mean, poor horse. Um, who wants to ride a horse or all that? Uh, he talks about people, you know, defecating in their pants, in their chariot, you know, because they were so afraid of him. You know, you really look in vain in the book of Joshua for any really good graphic violence. Okay. I mean, show me where he's, he guts somebody, you know, 
there's one place where they behead a bunch of the Canaanite kings. And, you know, down in, the, in, in Georgia, we'd say they had it coming. You know, these guys were tyrants. So, so you know, they needed killing would be uh, one. You know, that's still a defense in court where I came from. But, but when you look at Sennacherib, golly, it's just, I used to read about two columns of this in my classes, but students couldn't stand it. And so when you go to the Old Testament, what you find are these stereotyped summaries, and they use the same wording every time. And it tells you, yes, it was violence. But you read a book like The Attack on Jericho. Most of it is about the parade. You know, they, they wander around Jericho. They tote the ark and they blow on the horns and all this stuff. And then the end, it just says, and, they, and the Lord gave them into their hands. And you go, oh, come on. This is the good part. You know? You're not going to tell me? Did he draw his sword? You know, did he, did he personally gut the king? You know, we don't hear any of that stuff. But if this were being made into a movie today, the house-to-house fighting in Jericho would take up half the movie. I mean, imagine Lord of the Rings, the Battle of Helm's Deep. Imagine all the buildup, and then they just say, well, I'm glad that's over. Or they just, you know, and, and, and Frodo, you know, didn't give the ring to the to the the big ugly thing flying at him and, and fine. But what if you had no battle scenes? And, and in Joshua, we really have very few battle scenes. Now you read the Iliad, almost every trope of, of battle narrative that, is, that exists today is in the Iliad. And I mean, you've got scenes where the spear goes through the guy's jaw and comes out the other side and that his enemy then pulls him off the chariot using the spear, and it says he gaffs him like some fisherman, you know, pulling a fish. And then it says a right comely catch. You know, the the writer's enjoying this. And so you read all these descriptions in the Assyrians, and, and then you come to the Old Testament, and the Lord gave them into their hands. Clearly, there's no relish for the violence there. And I think that tells you lots. On a continuum not just of violence, but of what the actual historical violence would have been and the rhetoric invested in that violence. The Old Testament is really, really, really a long way from the Iliad, which is also a late Bronze Age, into the late Bronze Age text, and our friend Sennacherib here in in this uh, prism. You didn't expect me to whip out Sennacherib's prison there, did you? I really did not, but I'm... Really glad you did. <laughs> I'm going to capture is, that photo right there. This is made out of some kind of polymer and it weighs a ton. You know, <laughs> the actual prism was made of clay and it was hollow, light as a feather. But yeah. this thing, oh, you know, it's like you, you could like, you could like do shoulder presses with it. Or something, <laughs> you know? So, you know, the violence part, I mean, that's why my book is going to sort of look like the title is What Violence? It's there. But most of it is in our head. The the writers don't relish it. And even in Judges, the writers don't spend a lot of time on the military engagements. You get get the, the murder of Eglon, which is one guy. But when all the Israelites come down to attack the, the Moabites, it's handled in a very summary fashion. And then uh, Yael, the killing of Sisera, that gets a very, very, that's what we'd like to see on every page of Joshua for it to really be, you know, nasty. But I never see anybody attacking Deborah and Yael. 
because it's obvious Cicero deserved it. You know, he's he's the, the perfect candidate for somebody who really gets it at the end of the story. You know, you have this personal combat thing going on, but we don't really see the kind of carnage that that you see in other ancient texts and that we see in, in our own culture. And it just strikes me as strange that the very same people that enjoyed watching Game of Thrones has a problem with violence in the Old Testament. The Hebrews would have said, now tell me, you entertained yourself by watching what? They would really have been puzzled by that. Hmm. So uh, who's really more violent? Right. And there's something you've touched on. You actually said it earlier, but I'd like for you to maybe clarify or state it again, is some people would say, yes, but in Joshua, it's and all men, women, and children are slaughtered. And people would look at that and go that maybe we're not getting explicit details, but that's a lot of carnage. How can you imagine killing kids? They're complete innocent bystanders in this. So you you've mentioned the whole rhetoric, but can you maybe clarify that? Okay, some of it, there are some technical details in the exegesis. Rarely do we see the actual word for child, an infant, or a weaned, what we would call a toddler. The word often translated would be na'ar, but a na'ar or the female version na'ara is any un pre post-pubescent unmarried person. And so a lot of the, the word ne'erin is used in Egyptian to refer to the elite troops of Pharaoh, the, the guys, you know, his boys. And so a na'ar can be the person walking in front of the king bearing his armor. He can be a formidable soldier of his own right. The key is that he's not married. He's not the head of a household. And a na'ara is a female who could be over a household, but who is not. So you cease being a na'ar when you become, you know, head of a household. And, and a woman ceases being a na'ara when she then becomes uh, a woman over her household. So some of that language needs to be translated more precisely. The other thing is the, the use of, of uh, is it Hindiades from A to Z? When you say, you know, do it all, and, and you, you say, you know, from top to bottom, from, you know, soup to nuts, from A to Z, lock, stock, and barrel. Some of that language is that kind of stereotyped Hindiades language. He's not saying, I want you to kill babies. You know, he's just saying, this is um, one of the few times in your life, one of the few times in history when you've got to do this. And that there's no, you know, you've got to be decisive. But in fact, I don't know of a single example in Joshua or Judges of any non-adult being killed, actually narrated. And so, you know, the rhetoric is very strong, but was well understood not to be as denotative or journalistic as we would expect. And so like you even get in the Assyrian annals, sometimes even their use of hyperbole, he'll say, we killed every single person. And then he'll say, and we laid them under heavy tribute. I know dead people in Chicago can vote. I know this, but I don't think they pay taxes. But so he'll say we killed everybody. And then clearly he knew that when he said we killed everybody, what he meant was we killed, we we dealt with all the opposition. There's nobody raising a hand against us. So I think there's a lot of that. And actually Lawson Younger, who is my friend because he has the the name Lawson. Uh, We are a support group of two for people who have that name. 
he has written extensively on the rhetoric of warfare and how it is stereotypical and it is artificially extreme. And it's not just mere hyperbole. It's a code for something. And it's not to be decoded into the kind of journalistic description that we tend to do that. One thing that's through all this is, is you'll still have people, yeah, but when you just read the text, that's what it seems to say. And what I want to say is yes, and that's why we don't just read the text. We have to have decent exegesis. We, we've protected congregations from the sausage-making process too long. You know, they say nobody ever likes to see you make sausage. But it's time that we start letting folks know when we teach the Bible how these understandings emerge, how we translate the text, what's involved. Earlier generations knew a lot about this. When you read Puritan scholars and, and the Puritan pastors, they would routinely refer to the Hebrew and talk about the grammar. And, and I mean, they were wrong a lot of the time, but they were doing that. But we have people uh, who just want, who we believe that the plain sense of the Bible means the ignorant sense of the Bible. And believing in the plain sense of the Bible and sola scriptura doesn't mean bringing all my ignorance and stupidity to the text. You know, it means bringing uh, a competent understanding of the literature and the language and the setting. As I tell people, I'm not going to do with God's words what I wouldn't want done with mine. And that has been a grand principle for me that has stood me very well over the years. Yeah. And you know, I love it. I love how you just stated all of that. And there are times when I'm talking in Israel, we're standing on sites and we're talking about the, the use of words. And I'll say yeah. it really takes very little effort to read or to look at the temple walls in Egypt and Assyria in the palace walls in Assyria to know they were all doing the same thing. We killed absolutely everyone. Yeah. You know, we piled their hands and there's pictures of like hands piled on. Yeah, yeah, the hands I mean, it's all the heads. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just like it. And, and then for some reason people go, but it's different in the book of Joshua, but why is it different? And it's, and no, for them, there's some something the, that switches when it becomes sacred scripture. A hundred percent of it has to be true in the way they assume it's going to be true. Yeah. You know, the one thing I always like to say is I show them the, have you seen the picture of the Assyrian soldiers playing catch with the heads of the enemies? I like to show them that picture and say, this is, this is more than violence. This is a mindset that says we will play catch with your head. You know, God does not, there's no, none of that kind of trivial talk in the Old Testament. The closest we get, you know, is Joshua says, put your feet on these guys' necks, you know, and it's a symbolic gesture of, of a defeat for them. But, you know, the, the, there are no piles of heads and hands and phalluses and everything else that you get in these texts. There's no celebration of the mutilation of people. It's in a couple of places, but it's not everywhere the way it is in these other texts. And so one thing I think people need to do is immerse themselves in the culture and say, if you were living at the end of the late Bronze Age and e the Egyptian power and all of its oppressive pressure, if the Pharaoh had called out the men from your village to work in his ports and to work in his 
farms so that there's nobody left in your village that understands the land and how to cultivate it. And so now you're all starving. So now you've got to find some other place to live. And somebody comes along and he says, we can make those people stop doing that. Well, you're going to, most of us would understand completely the desire to throw those guys out of town and, 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 you know, and kill them all. I'm not saying we should, but so the fact that, that that seems to be what we had and the fact that the text doesn't glory in the graphic, gruesome, circumstantial detail is quite impressive to me. You know, I've even uh, got been worried about the animals, like the, the horses in the, in the story at Hatsor, that it says they were hamstrung. And, and I've got some, I have some concerns about that because you've got to imagine if they had a thousand chariots, let's say two horses per chariot, maybe three, but you're going to have to have at least two teams. So we're talking now about four, 8,000 horses with mutilated legs limping around Northern Israel. That's crazy. That's not, that can't be what that story is actually saying. So I've been studying some on that to try to figure out what happened to the horses at Hatsor. <laughs> so, you know, I'm down to worry about animal. I'm even worried about animal violence, you know? So Yeah, it speaks also of your context as one who has horses and cares for horses Absolutely. that you notice their yeah. presence in the text. I mean, the thing that troubles me is that God doesn't seem to like horses, you know, in the Bible. And that really bugs me. Say, like, oh, come on, God. What is your problem with horses? <laughs> Why is it always the sheep and goats? <laughs> Give the right, horses yeah, I mean, a break. Sheep and goats? Oh, come on, you know. So, but yeah, and, you know, we have to remember, you know, you've, you've got a group of people who escaped slavery, who have struggled through a near impassable wilderness. They've encountered all manner of difficulty and failure. A whole generation of them has died out. Another generation's born in the desert and, and only had that grim history of, you know, the failure of their parents' generation and the thought that some way, someday we will go into this promised land thing. How is that going to work? And I don't know. We, and all they want to do is have a home and they want it to be the home that they came from, that their ancestors came from. And so, you know, that's the thing that has to remember. This is not a conquest. This is a return. And it's return to ground that is, that has been conquered by Egypt, by Amuru, by all these other groups. And these people just want to, once again, let the land do what it does best, which is grow crops, feed animals, and be a place where folks can have a life. And there's lots of people who don't want you to have that. They're all empires. That is a strong statement to end on. For all of you sitting at the table with me today, what do you think? Was Dr. Stone able to help you see violence in Joshua and Judges in a different way? Are there still problematic texts for you that you would like to explore, figure out how to read them in context? Reach out to me through narrativeofplace.com and let me know. I am so glad you sat with us around the podcast table, and I hope these conversations help you go back to the challenging bits of the biblical text to search for new insights. 
My amazing team on Patreon make this season of Context Matters possible. Not only are Pastor Jack and David and Julie Longman a huge, massive encouragement to me, but they get special things like spices from Israel and first copies of articles I'm writing and first dibs on signing up for trips to Israel with me. If you would like to join the team, you'll find a link in the episode notes. But you can also support this podcast by simply posting a link on your social media pages and inviting friends and family to join us at the podcast table. Easy. I produced and edited this podcast. Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music, and Luke Bronner of Milieu Media Group did the final mix. I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe and take care of each other and stay curious about the world around you. Mm-hmm.